0: and my brother, Dr. Steven Ned, for this week's body chat about vitamin A. Me? I'm a retired Twin Cities chiropractor currently helping people buy and sell homes in the Tampa Bay and Los Angeles areas. My brother has a thriving chiropractic practice in the Clearwater area of Tampa Bay, Florida. In this podcast, we're going to chat about all sorts of topics related to health, nutrition, exercise, just about everything having to do with the body. You're invited to listen into our body chat, but don't forget that neither of us is giving you health advice. So don't rush off to do something without either checking with your doctor first or seeing Dr. Steven as a patient at his office. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Ron. All right. So we're going to start our series of episodes having to do with vitamins and supplements and minerals and different things like that. We're going to go over all of these so people have a better understanding of what each one does, how to use it appropriately, what types of things it's good for, and what things to avoid doing when taking certain vitamins. Now, we're going to start out with one of the fat-soluble vitamins, which is vitamin A. It's going to be the episode this week. We were looking at doing both A and E in the same episode, but there was so much information that it would it would have gotten too long. So we're splitting that into two episodes, and we're just going to do A for this episode. And since this is the first one about vitamins, let's start off by looking at why vitamins are actually called vitamins.
1: All right. Well, vitamins were first named in 1912 by Dr. Casimir Funk. Uh, He detected active properties in unpolished rice husks and called them vitamins from the Latin vitals, which means vitally important, and amines, which are organic derivatives of ammonia. So Funk theorized that all active substances were nitrogen-containing amines. Well, you know, his theory was eventually proven wrong, but the name vitamins stuck minus the E.
0: Okay, so that's how that actually began. So now that we know why they're called vitamins, How did the naming convention get started where letters are used and even sometimes combinations of letters and numbers like with the B vitamins?
1: All right. Well, the true origin of how vitamins were designated using letters is very interesting, actually. Okay. Uh, The man credited with co-discovering vitamin A, Elmer McCollum, has historically been incorrectly credited with also originating the lettering system for vitamins. The true original source was in the master's thesis of a woman called Cornelia Kennedy, written in 1916. McCollum actually claimed later in a paper of his own that he did the original letter coding when he actually didn't. It was her. And ironically, he was also her mentor. And so this was a time when women still weren't respected and taken seriously in scientific circles. I mean, this was four years before women finally attained the right to vote. And, you know, she was quite brilliant and later received her PhD at Johns Hopkins and went on to publish 32 articles over 33 years. Wow! Yep. So the vitamins were named in order of discovery. However, vitamin B, specifically B3 or niacin, was actually the first discovered by Dr. Funk and then A, C, D, E, and K you know we'll go into more details on all the B vitamins in an upcoming podcast okay and here's another thing you may have noticed that there's a gap between vitamins E and K because there used to be vitamins F G H I and J but they were reclassified really yeah so vitamin F today is known as the essential fatty acids omega 3 and 6 And remember, we went over this in podcast episode 18 called Good Fats, Bad Fats, Omega-3s and 6s. Right. Vitamin G was reclassified as vitamin B2, which is riboflavin. Vitamin H is now biotin, another B-complex vitamin. Uh, Vitamin I was the most mysterious of the bunch because it wasn't reclassified. It was actually declassified, and records of it were lost. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and then vitamin J, just like vitamin G was reclassified as vitamin B2 or riboflavin, vitamin J was found to be so similar to vitamin G that the two became the same. Okay. Yeah, just a little trivia history there.
0: Yeah, all right, so that tells us why the letters were used and how that went about. Mm -hmm. So now let's get on to the first one, vitamin A. How was it discovered?
1: I mentioned earlier that Elmer McCollum co-discovered vitamin A. Uh, he discovered it in 1913 along with Marguerite Davis at the University of Wisconsin from doing experiments on rats that were fed diets containing various fats, and the ones fed butter improved their health and longevity. So they concluded that certain fats like those in butter contain a trace amount of some fat soluble organic substance that's essential in the nutrition of the animal. Uh, well. Talk about fat-soluble versus water-soluble in a little bit, but fat-soluble simply means a substance that dissolves in fat or oils. Okay. Now, they named this substance that they discovered fat-soluble A. The designation fat-soluble was dropped from the name in 1920, along with the E being removed from vitamin or vitamin at the same time. Mm Mm-hmm. Another interesting piece of trivia is the fact that another pair of scientists from Yale University did nearly identical animal study experiments with the same findings and their paper was accepted three weeks after McCollum and Davis's findings were officially recognized. Ironically, both of their papers ended up in the same volume of the very same journal.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Yes. So vitamin A was discovered about 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, what are the functions in the body that vitamin A is needed for? Uh,
1: vitamin A is absolutely essential for maintaining four areas of body function, which are vision, body growth, immune function, and reproductive health. Now, for a detailed explanation of the important role that vitamin A plays in your vision, you can listen to our previous podcast episode number 17 called Keeping Your Vision Strong Naturally.
0: Right. Right. Okay. So that lets us know the things that it's needed for. So when there's a vitamin A deficiency, how does that show up?
1: Well, the most common conditions resulting from vitamin A deficiency are hair loss, skin problems, dry eyes, night blindness, and increased susceptibility to infections. You know, we also covered in podcast episode 17 on vision the fact that vitamin A deficiency is the leading cause of preventable blindness in children worldwide. Uh, approximately 250,000 to 500,000 children in low- and middle-income nations become blind every year because of vitamin A deficiency, and half of these children die within a year of losing their sight. Hmm. Uh, another interesting thing I learned this week while researching vitamin A is its role with the thyroid gland and how a deficiency can affect it. Studies have shown that people, especially children who are deficient in vitamin A as well as iodine, which results in thyroid problems, especially an enlargement problem called a goiter, you know, when these people take vitamin A along with iodine, they get much better results than just taking iodine alone. Uh, Their thyroid hormone levels, including the pituitary hormone called TSH, balance out better and their risk of goiter actually decreases when you take the two of those together. Vitamin A also affects iron in the body in many ways. Uh, Vitamin A deficiency affects iron mobilization in the blood. It impairs the production of hemoglobin and it can suddenly cause iron deficiency anemia that is only alleviated with supplementation of both vitamin A and iron.
0: Okay. So vitamin A is helpful both with iron and with uh, thyroid, with mm-hmm. iodine. Yep. So it's supportive in both those cases. Correct. Now, what are the best foods to eat if somebody wants to get a quality level of vitamin A just from food?
1: Okay, well... Let's start with what's called preformed vitamin A. This is also known as retinol, and this can only be found in animal-sourced foods such as liver, oily fish, cheese, and butter. I'm going to call preformed vitamin A either regular vitamin A or just vitamin A the rest of the podcast to simplify things. Okay. Uh, Beef liver is far and away the richest source of vitamin A, followed by lamb liver and liver sausage. Next up are fish sources with cod liver oil topping the list, followed by king mackerel, salmon, and bluefin tuna. Uh After these is goose liver pate, and then various dairy sources, starting with goat cheese, followed by butter, the cheese is Limburger, cheddar, Camembert, Roquefort, and finally, hard-boiled eggs. Now, vegetables and fruits do not contain regular vitamin A, but instead what are called carotenoids, which include beta-carotene and alpha-carotene, and these are collectively known as provitamin A. The body has the ability to convert carotenoids or provitamin A to regular vitamin A. There are actually hundreds of different carotenoids produced by plants, but only about 10% of them are capable of being converted to regular vitamin A. In addition, 45% of the population carries a genetic mutation that reduces their ability to do this conversion. So because of this, if you try to get all of your daily vitamin A requirements strictly from vegetables and or fruits, then you're taking a risk of not meeting your minimum requirements. Okay, that's good to know. Mm-hmm. Now, since vegetables in general have much more pro-vitamin A in them than fruit, let's look at the best vegetable sources of provitamin A. Okay. Uh, Sweet potatoes lead the way, followed by winter squash, kale, collards, turnip greens, carrots. I thought that was kind of wild that they're only the sixth richest source of pro-vitamin A when they've traditionally been the vegetable that you think of first when it comes to vitamin A. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Then after carrots is sweet red peppers, followed by my personal favorite leafy green vegetable, Swiss chard. And then rounding out the top 10, spinach and romaine lettuce. The top seven vegetables have more pro-vitamin A per serving than the top fruit, which is mango, with cantaloupe coming in in a close second. And after that, we have pink or red grapefruit, and then the levels really start to drop with watermelon and papaya.
0: Okay. But half of the people who would be trying to get their vitamin A from those sources wouldn't because of the genetic mutation.
1: Yeah, so it's probably smart to supplement with a good source of vitamin A just to be on the safe side.
0: Okay. Now, when will higher doses of vitamin A be beneficial, ones that are above what you would normally get from just eating the proper foods?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are definitely some situations where higher doses, even megadoses of vitamin A are recommended. The recommended dietary allowances or RDA for vitamin A has traditionally been measured in international units, but now it's also measured in micrograms per day. For example, the RDA for vitamin A in adult women is 700 micrograms per day or 2,300 international units, and for adult men, it's 900 micrograms per day or 3,000 international units eating five servings of fruits and vegetables per day provides about 50 to 65% of the adult RDA for vitamin A. So as you can see, I mean, not many people eat five servings of that per day. So it's really smart to also supplement.
0: Well, even if you did eat the five or six servings, that's only half of what you need. So you'd have to be eating beef liver or goose liver pate or roquefort or camembert Something like that to get additional vitamin A in your diet to meet the recommended daily allowance. That's correct. Now, there's also
1: what's called the tolerable upper intake levels, also known as UL for vitamin A. The UL is the highest level of intake that's likely to pose no risk of harmful effects. So, the ULs for vitamin A are for regular vitamin A and don't include provitamin A carotenoids, the vegetarian sources. Okay. And for adults age 19 and older, including pregnancy and lactation, that would be 3,000 micrograms per day or 10,000 IUs per day as the upper limit. Let's also look at specific instances where high doses of vitamin A are warranted. Uh, When it comes to preventable blindness due to vitamin A deficiency that I spoke of earlier, this situation goes through different stages. The earliest symptom is called night blindness, followed by abnormal changes in the conjunctiva, which is the corner of the eye, and then when the deficiency becomes severe and prolonged, it results in what's called xerophthalmia, which is Greek for dry eye, and this leads to corneal ulcers, scarring, and finally blindness. So to prevent blindness from xerophthalmia, the required recommendation is the immediate administration of, get this... 200,000 international units of vitamin A for two consecutive days. Wow. Mm -hmm. There's also two sets of studies that show that megadoses of vitamin A are good for children fighting measles. Uh, The pooled analysis of four studies found an 83% lower risk of death from measles with two doses of, again, 200,000 international units of vitamin A in children younger than two years. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. And also, the pooled analysis of three studies indicated a 67% reduction in the risk of the complication of pneumonia deaths resulting from measles from taking the same doses of vitamin A. Again, you know, 200,000 IUs. Other conditions that vitamin A has been found through studies to help by using what's called pharmacological doses, which means at least 10 times greater than that needed to prevent deficiency, include a specific form of leukemia various skin diseases, and the leading cause of inherited blindness called retinitis pigmentosa, which affects 1.5 million people worldwide. Okay.
0: So those are some of the times where using higher doses makes sense. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned something about skin conditions. So is there a time when vitamin A should be used topically?
1: Oh, yeah. You know, vitamin A is added to many cosmetic products, such as moisturizers, sunscreen vitamin-infused oils, and anti-aging creams. Uh, It can also be found as a serum and as an oil, and some vitamin A supplements come in the form of capsules that can be broken open and applied directly to the skin. Right. Uh, The American Academy of Dermatology recommends using topical retinoids to treat acne in both adolescents and adults. And studies reported in toxicological research also indicate that retinol is effective at stimulating collagen production and reducing wrinkles when used topically, so it
0: can be used for anti-aging. Hopefully, Kim Kardashian's listening to this.
1: (laughs) Now, going back to our podcast on sunburns, uh, episode number 21, we went into detail about sunscreens and brought up the fact that many sunscreens contain various forms of vitamin A, including retinol and retinyl palmitate. And I made the point that you would normally think that this is a good thing because vitamin A is generally good and essential for the body. But studies by the federal government scientists indicate that it can trigger the development of skin tumors and lesions when used on the skin in the presence of sunlight. What they found is that it it can increase the risk of skin cancer by increasing the speed at which malignant cells develop and spread. So when you choose a sunscreen, definitely avoid the ones with all forms of vitamin A along with what's called oxybenzone. Now, oxybenzone is a chemical that can produce allergic skin reactions and is a known hormone disruptor linked to reduced sperm count in men and endometriosis in women. Plus, it was in the news earlier this year due to its harmful effects on coral reefs. And because of this, it's actually going to be banned in Hawaii starting in 2021.
0: Wow. Mm -hmm. Now, when should people be cautious concerning using vitamin A. Is there anything that they need to pay attention to that could be harmful or dangerous about the use of vitamin A? Absolutely. You know, some important
1: safety concerns about vitamin A include the fact that too much vitamin A exposure, which can lead to toxicity, also known as hypervitaminosis A, can occur from overconsumption from regular vitamin A, again, from animal source foods or supplements but not from the carotenoids, which again are from vegetables and fruits or in supplement form, including Mm beta-carotene. Now, acute vitamin A toxicity is relatively rare, and symptoms include nausea, headache, fatigue, loss of appetite, dizziness, dry skin, and brain swelling. Signs of chronic toxicity include dry, itchy skin, anorexia, weight loss, headache, again, brain swelling enlarged liver, enlarged spleen, anemia, and bone and joint pain. Signs of chronic toxicity are associated with long-term consumption of vitamin A in excess of 10 times the RDA, which is approximately 25,000 to 33,000 international units per day. Overconsumption of vitamin A is especially contraindicated for women prior to and during pregnancy since it can result in severe birth defects. Now, as far as cancer is concerned, studies in cell culture and animal models have shown that natural and synthetic retinoids can reduce cancer development significantly in skin, breast, liver, colon, prostate, and other sites. However, the results of human studies examining the relationship between the consumption of preformed vitamin A, again, regular vitamin A, and cancer don't currently suggest that consuming vitamin A or regular vitamin A at intakes greater than the RDA benefit in the prevention of cancer. So again, from these two studies, it looks like taking beta carotene, the form of beta carotene, is actually better than the regular form from animals as far as cancer is concerned. Okay. Okay. Now, one study showed that taking high doses of regular vitamin A and beta carotene actually increased the rate of lung cancer in people at high risk for cancer like smokers. Their cancer rates were actually higher by 28% after four years, but at six years, the rates were the same. Some of the people in the study also took vitamin D at 400 or more international units per day, and they had a significant reduction in lung cancer risk. Hmm. So vitamin D can definitely help prevent cancer in certain cases, including lung cancer. And, you know, remember our father used to take mega doses of vitamin A for infections and for his eyes in his fifties when he overcame night blindness and he actually corrected his vision, never having to wear glasses after that. But, you know, he did eventually develop skin cancer. True. So there could have been a relationship with the, you know, the high amounts of vitamin A that he took for long stretches of time. Yep. Now, another concern with vitamin A is that some studies show a potential higher risk for osteoporotic bone fractures in older adults when they consume 5,000 IUs of regular vitamin A daily. So it would be advisable for older individuals to, to consume multivitamin supplements that contain no more than 2,500 international units or 750 micrograms of regular vitamin A, which is you know usually labeled as vitamin A acetate or vitamin A palmitate, right? and no more than 2,500 international units of additional vitamin A as beta-carotene.
0: Ah. Well, since regular vitamin A is fat-soluble and the carotenoids are water-soluble, maybe we should take a look at what the difference is between fat-soluble and water-soluble vitamins.
1: Okay, good. Yeah, you know, we touched on this a little earlier. Um, Fat-soluble vitamins are dissolved in fats, and then they're absorbed by fat globules that travel through the small intestine, and then they're distributed through the body in the bloodstream. Uh, Unlike water-soluble vitamins, excess fat-soluble vitamins are stored in the liver and the fatty tissues for future use. And there are four fat-soluble vitamins. So in addition to vitamin A, there's also vitamins D, E, and K, and we'll cover vitamin E in the next podcast. Correct. Uh, The water-soluble vitamins are those that are dissolved in water and are readily absorbed into tissues for immediate use. Unlike fat-soluble vitamins, they're not stored in the body, so they need to be replenished regularly in our diet via food or supplements. Uh, excess water-soluble vitamins are quickly excreted in the urine and will rarely accumulate to toxic levels in the body, whereas fat-soluble vitamins can build up and accumulate to toxic levels, as we learned earlier. Mm-hmm. So the water-soluble vitamins are vitamin C and the B-complex group, which contains eight primary vitamins.
0: Okay. So bottom line is fat-soluble you can store it in your body and build up to a point where it's toxic, whereas the water-soluble, you flush out of your system any more than you actually need in the cells. That's right. Okay. So that's the information about vitamin A. So is there anything else you'd like to say on it before we end? I think we've got it covered. Okay, good. So the next episode we're going to do is on one of the other major fat-soluble vitamins, which is vitamin E, which has got a very interesting history and is very useful in a lot of ways. And then we'll continue from there through the alphabet to the Bs and C and D and K, and we'll get them all knocked out. And then we'll get into some minerals and also how the balance of vitamins is very important to somebody's health. So thanks for all that information, Steve.
1: You're welcome. I, uh, I actually learned a lot, even though I have a, a pretty good background. I have thousands of hours of study and training on nutrition. I learned quite a bit this week.
0: That's excellent. And hopefully the listeners have too, and they'll learn even more next week when we get onto the next vitamin and do the second episode in this series. Thanks, Steve. Right on. Thanks for joining us this week on the Body Chat Podcast. We both really appreciate your time and your attention. We want to provide you with interesting and informative episodes each week, and if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or any questions you'd like us to answer, send an email to us at info at bodychatpodcast.com. That's info at To make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, subscribe to the Body Chat Podcast now on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. See you next week.